Praise the Lord. All right. Well, we're going to go to the Word now, and we're continuing our series that I began a few weeks ago called The Power of Thanksgiving. And today we're going to talk about the purpose of praise, the purpose of praise. Uh, So let's turn to our master text in Psalm 149, the book of Psalms, and the 149th chapter, which is the next to the last one. And while you're turning there, I'll just say that uh, in this series... We've been learning about the importance of living a lifestyle of thankfulness. And last week we learned about how God has ordained praise and, um, you know, how that's supposed to look. So we had some instructions from the Word last week about how that's supposed to look. And this week we're going to talk about and focus on the power of praise and the impact that that can have upon your life and also the world around you. So if you found Psalm 149, go ahead and stand with me if you will, and let's read that. We'll read the whole thing. It's pretty short. So Psalm 149 says this. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them, This is the glory of all his saints. Praise the Lord. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Well, the last part of that that chapter there may seem a little bit out of place with the first part, talking about inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment upon the peoples. Well, I'm going to come back to that, so hold that thought. I'm going to, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 149 in its entirety and... uh, try to make some sense out of that. But hold that thought. I have, a, a, first of all, a key thought that I want you to consider this morning, and that's this. Our key concept for this morning is that God often requires a physical act in order to receive a release of his spirit. Let's stop and consider that again. God often requires a physical act in order to receive a release of his spirit. And there's a few examples of this that I want to go over with you. And the first one is actually illustrated there on the screen with Moses and a couple of men by the name of Aaron and Hur. And let me explain what you're seeing there in that illustration. Uh, That's taken from Exodus 17, where God told Moses to go out and fight the Amalekites. And He told Moses to stand up on a high place and hold his rod up over his head. And as long as he did that, the Israelites would advance against the Amalekites. But when Moses got tired and lowered that staff, then the Amalekites would begin to advance against the Israelites. So Aaron and Hur kind of come to the rescue there, and they set Moses down on a rock and hold up his hands so that he can keep that rod above his head. And as long as he did that, the Israelites advanced against the Amalekites and won a great victory that day. Now, in a related story in 2 Kings, there was a Syrian commander by the name of Naaman. And Naaman was a leper, a very powerful, influential man, but he had leprosy. And uh, he went to the house of a prophet in Israel by the name of Elisha looking for healing because he had heard that Elisha could perform these wonderful miracles. So he went to the home of Elisha, and Elisha told him to do something a little strange. He told him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and when he did so, he would be healed of that leprosy. Well, you see, in both cases, a Obedience to a a simple physical act would precede a breakthrough of God's power. In both cases, in the the story of Moses against the Amalekites and Naaman when he went to see Elisha, in both cases, God was simply giving a simple instruction. If you do this, God says, I will do that. If you'll do this, I'll do that. So it's true in various places throughout Scripture that physical obedience brings spiritual breakthrough 
as well as physical breakthrough. What we do here and now with our physical bodies makes a difference in the unseen world. I want to say that again. What we do in the here and now with our physical bodies makes a difference in the unseen world. And sometimes, get this, sometimes these physical acts of obedience are simply tests of the heart. Because in many cases, they're not difficult to do. It's just, will we obey? There's a deadly serpent that has slithered its way into the body of Christ in the last several generations. And that serpent looks like this. In the modern day church, we've reduced everything down to feelings and intellect with very little physical action. Let me say that again. We've reduced everything down to feelings and intellect, but very little physical actions. In other words, well, I feel like I'm humble, so I don't ever have to get on my knees and bow before the Lord. I feel like I love the Lord and I worship him on the inside, so I don't ever have to clap my hands or raise my hands. God knows my heart. I have faith in my heart, so I don't ever have to risk anything and actually act out my faith. Are you with me? You know, try that in marriage. If you say to your spouse that you love him or her, but you never show it physically with some affection, then your spouse is going to have some doubts, and rightfully so. Am I right? And God says, sometimes I demand of my people a physical response before I release a spiritual reward. And worship is one of those acts of obedience. You know, going back to Naaman, when the prophet Elisha told him to go dip in the Jordan River, he was offended by that at first, if you've read that story. That was an insult to his intellect, wasn't it? I mean, he said to his servant, well, I don't have to do that. Aren't there many more better rivers in Syria than that dirty Jordan River? You remember that? Those of you that read that? He, he, so, so essentially, he was, it was almost too simplistic for him. In fact, his servant that was with him had a great perspective for him. He said, sir, if the man of God would have told you to do some great thing, some difficult thing, you would have done it. But this is a simple thing. Why don't you try it and see what happens? And Naaman did, and God did. Naaman got healed. So, you know... Um, a lot of people in the body of Christ today have that same attitude that Naaman had. They say in their hearts, well, I don't have to worship God with any outward physical act. I don't have to be in the house of God faithfully. I don't have to fast. And you know what? You're right. You don't have to do any of those things. And you don't have to walk in the upper realms of God's blessing and favor either. Now, I'd just like to pause right here and challenge you all with something. You know, if you're not a person who normally worships God openly and outwardly, I just want to ask you to try it for a while and see if you don't feel closer to God as a result. Really, I'll bet you'll feel closer to God as a result, maybe the first time you try it. And certainly, as you practice that as a lifestyle, I'll bet you'll feel closer to God as a result. I remember as a, as a young man, um, when I first lifted my hands in worship to, to the Lord in a public setting, it felt like, felt like they were about 100 pounds a piece. It was like... <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. But I knew that this is a response that is in the Word of God. And God's worthy. And I mean, how hard is it really, seriously, to lift your hands to the Lord if there's something you see in his word that brings honor to him? And so I did. You know what? That very first time, when I, once I got my arms in the air, it's like, man, there's like a release. Seriously. It's like, yes, this, this is the right. I don't care what everybody else around me is doing right now. And, you know, our, we humans are so self-focused. We're such egomaniacs sometimes. It's like, well, if I lift my hands, what will the people around me think? Let me just help you. They're not thinking about you. 
No one's thinking about you. No one's watching you. They don't care. You know what people are thinking about most of the time? Themselves. They don't care. Okay, so let me just get that monkey off your back right now. We really are so egocentric, aren't we? So once again, if you're not a person that normally worships outwardly like that, I just want to challenge you to try it and see if you don't sense a release in the spirit right then and there. But certainly as you practice it as a lifestyle, I'll bet you'll start feeling closer to the Lord as a result. And parents, I want to challenge you to uh, lead the way for your children in this regard. You know, if you want your children to be passionate about the things of God, you be passionate about the things of God. You lead by example. Not just what you say, you lead by example. Now, allow me to make a qualifying remark here before we proceed any further. In worshiping with these outward physical acts that we talked about last week, if you weren't here last week, I I encourage you to go to the website, pull up that teaching, and listen to uh, that. I, I went through several scriptures about all these various physical acts that uh, God uh, requires in worship. So go listen to that. Uh, I don't have time to go over all that again. But in worshiping with all these various physical acts, you know, we need to evaluate everything that we do uh, according to the word of God. See, if you confide it in the word, it's sanctioned. But if you can't find it in the word... You need to scrutinize it. We need to scrutinize it very closely. See, for example, God's word does not say to worship him with violent shaking and howling and slithering on the ground. Now, I know that sounds like really a very unusual example, an extreme example, but seriously, there's some circles, and I've seen this throughout my time you know, serving the Lord in various churches. I've seen that sort of behavior. That does go on in certain churches. Um, And I just, I think I've experienced that there are certain people that just believe that the weirder something is, the more spiritual it must be. And that is not true. See, God's word instructs us to be of sound mind, of sound mind. Everything we do must be done with purpose, with self-control, and according to God's word. Now, it reminds me of a a couple of young men in the Bible by the name of Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus 10, 9 and 10, if you read that, Nadab and Abihu were the first priests in Israel. They were Aaron's sons. And God gave them very specific instructions about that very first worship service after the nation of Israel was set up. And so God gave them very, very precise instructions, and they followed it to the T. And so when that sacrifice was laid out, fire came out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And now I'm kind of reading between the lines here, so forgive me because this, what you're about to hear isn't in the Bible, but I'm kind of reading between the lines based upon what Nadab and Abihu did next. They actually repeated the same ceremony and procedure and offered a second sacrifice. Here's what I think happened. These were young men, and I think this is what happened. The fire came out of heaven, super miraculous you know, occurrence there, and I think they went like, like this. I think they went, wow, that was cool. Let's offer another sacrifice and see if God will do it again. So they offered the second sacrifice, and fire did come out of heaven again, but it consumed them this time. See, God was very serious about the way that he was to be worshipped. He gave very precise instructions and expected them to be followed. He didn't want any deviation. And he didn't didn't authorize a second sacrifice. The Bible calls it a strange fire that they offered or an unauthorized fire that they offered. So God was making sure that his, his holy name was not profaned with something extra biblical or, 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 or outside of his very specific instructions. So, so yes, getting back to my point is that yes, God does require certain physical acts in order to receive a release of his spirit. And he also requires that those physical acts be ordained by him and his word and not something else. Okay. Not out of some emotional response. I'm not against emotion, 
But if you're not careful, you can let emotion go too far and cause it to lead you beyond what the Word of God says. If you can find it in the Word, let's do it. If you can't find it in the Word, let's pause, right? Now, before I move on into some other content this morning, I just want to say this, that allow me to say that God is not displeased with any of you who have more quiet, reserved kind of personalities He's not displeased because he made you that way, all right? But I do want to respectfully challenge you shy folks to not hide behind your shyness, okay? Learn to be bold for Jesus. Now, you're looking at a person right now whose natural tendency is toward shyness. And I started learning early in life that I didn't want to live my life being shy because it, it, it causes you... I mean, in social settings and in the, in, in, you know, the career setting and what have you, shyness can actually really work against you if you let it. So I, I learned early in my life, I didn't want to be a shy person. Of course, before I came to Christ, I used alcohol to lubricate my interaction with people and in social settings. But then when I came to Christ, I wasn't doing that anymore. So I just had to learn through the help of the Lord that I'm going to engage people and sometimes I'll make the first move even if it is uncomfortable for me, because I, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live as a shy person. Okay? So, so God wired me as kind of that, a, a more quiet, reserved kind of individual, and that served me in, in certain respects. Listen, I want to say again, God made you the way he made you because he wanted to make you that way. And the, my, my more reserved personality has served me in the fact that I'm a good listener, and I can sit across the t- table from somebody and let them... Talk all they want, and I can just, you know, I can say, mm-hmm, yeah, oh, oh that's interesting, ah. And, and, you know, they say 90%, they, they talk 90% of the time, and I'll, I'll walk away, and they'll say in their minds, boy, that Andy, he's a great conversationalist. And I didn't say, <laughs> I didn't say 10 words, <clears throat> but I listened, you see, and people like that. Okay, so why do I say that? Because God's made you a certain way because he wants you to excel in those areas that your personality really, um, it helps people in certain situations. But for every personality strength, as I mentioned last week, there's also a corresponding weakness. So with, with my shyness, it's more my more reserved personality, it served me well because I'm a good listener. But where it hasn't served me is always thinking about the other person first rather than thinking about, well, what do they think of me? What, how am I going to look here? You see what I'm saying? So I want to challenge you shy folks to not hide behind your shyness, to learn to be bold for Jesus and to, you know, reach out to other people and be concerned with them too. Okay, that was totally for free. That's a side note. But I want to get into some some other material here this morning. And I want to talk to you about God's prophetic purpose for praise. God's prophetic purpose for praise. So we're going to read a little bit out of the prophetic book, the prophet Amos. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So it's right up on the screen for you, so let's read together. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, referring to Israel, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, Let me explain that the tabernacle of David was a place of music and praise. You see that illustrated there, right there, with the fire of God coming down. That's the the tabernacle of David is illustrated there in that painting. That was a a place of music and praise. So hundreds of years after the removal of David's tabernacle, Amos writes that a day is coming when God will figuratively restore the tabernacle of David and build it or rebuild it as it used to be. See, the Spirit of God was saying through Amos that that a day is coming when the priestly and spiritual ministry of of worship conducted in the tabernacle will be restored among the remnant of Israel and us Gentiles. Hallelujah. And folks, we're living in that day right now in the new covenant. Hallelujah. See, worship is no longer just about a physical location. It is that, but it's not just about a physical location any longer. It's about a heart attitude. See, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that he is looking for true worshipers. True worshipers. All right, so let me give you some other insights about that passage in Amos. Notice that it says that they may 
possess, that they may possess. What's that referring to? Well, uh, God's purpose for rebuilding the tabernacle of David is for possessing. What do I mean by that? Well, that word possess in the ancient Hebrew is the word yeresh. Yeresh, and here's what it means. To occupy by driving out the previous tenants. To cast out, to consume, to destroy, and to disinherit. Okay, how does that apply to this teaching? Well, our key thought here as it relates to this passage in Amos is this, that God is restoring the tabernacle of David so that the church will have an instrument of warfare to drive out, cast out, consume, and destroy the forces of darkness and in turn occupy the earth. Listen, this is part of why Satan hates praise and worship. See, first of all, Satan is an egomaniac. And he wants that worship for himself. He thinks he ought to get it. As a matter of fact, there's evidence in some of the prophetic books in the Bible that Satan, then called Lucifer before his fall, was actually the lead cherub, the lead angel who was in charge of praise and worship in heaven. And he was a beautiful, glorious being who uh, apparently his body, or at least parts of it, was a musical instrument decorated with emeralds. So he, he got filled with pride, and he thinks he should receive that worship. He even went so far. I mean, I can't believe the audacity of Satan. He went so far as to even try to cut a deal with Jesus to try to get Jesus to bow down and worship him. What an egomaniac. And secondly, Satan is afraid of the power of praise and worship. See, this is why Satan works overtime. Listen to me. This is why Satan works overtime to dumb down praise and worship, to dull our spiritual senses and to suck the life out of our worship so that it's stripped of its power. And he uses all kinds of methods to do that. He uses just our cold, hard, dead attitude sometimes. And sometimes, you know, he uses outward things like I mean I, I've seen online I've watched some church services that I mean they look like discotheques and, and I think somebody asked me one time you know have you ever thought about using you know fog machines and stuff like that I'm like um no <laughs> and I know that's popular in some churches, and I, you know, there's, I guess there's nothing sinful about that, I, so I'm not, you know, I'm not disparaging that too much, but my thought here is this, just, just work with me for a second. My thought is this, isn't all this external stuff that we do in trying to create an atmosphere with fog machines and, and, and laser lights and all that, again, not that that's sinful, not that I'm, you know, bashing that, but... So I think sometimes a lot of this external stuff is just a, a poor admission of the lack of the presence of, and power of God in our services. See, if there was a, the presence and power of God in our services, we wouldn't need all that stuff. It's just kind of a, a poor admission of, man, let's try, to, let's try to make this cool and snazzy and, and exciting in some way because... It's like Ichabod's written across the door. So we have to come up with something to try to make this cool and, and stimulating to our senses. Again, I'm not bashing churches that do that, but that's just something that I don't want to do because I don't want us to rely so heavily. Now, I know that we have you know, equipment, sound equipment, and we have you know, the screens up here and that sort of thing. So we, I guess we do that to a certain degree, but I don't know. I just... Don't ever expect fog machines here in this church, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bill. So, once again, Satan uses all this different methodology because he's working overtime to dumb down our praise and worship, to dull our spiritual senses, and to suck the life out of our worship so that it's stripped of its power and it becomes nothing more than entertainment. 
Okay, so let me tell you something. I, I'm going to change thoughts here for just a moment and, and um, talk about our nation for a moment because I know that many of us are very concerned about how, where our nation is headed, as am I. But the battle for our nation won't be won with just political positioning. Okay, so the revival in America that has actually already begun in various pockets is being spearheaded by people lifting up praise to God. Not only in church, but also in public places. You know, that Asbury revival that began in, in Kentucky, um, what was it, last year? Um, that was essentially, that whole revival was sparked by simply praise and worship and people during praise and worship repenting and going to the altar and just praying and seeking God. And, and even after the, the services was over, people stayed and prayed and worshiped. That whole revival was based upon worship. And then I've seen online, you know, these massive worship services being conducted in the streets of New York City, in Times Square, on the beaches in California, and public places that are not churches. So there is a revival that's beginning to happen in America, and it's being led by people who are using praise and worship as the tools and the the weapons of war. See, God will be honored. His name will be exalted. And his praises sung victoriously, vigorously, and passionately. And just like in the days of King Jehoshaphat, worship is on the front lines, ladies and gentlemen, of God's kingdom advancing in power. Now, let's swing it back around to our master text and read part of that again. Because I want, I want, to, want us to... Look at some principles here related to that master text. So here again, the first five verses says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praises in the assembly of the faithful. O Israel, rejoice in your Maker. O people of Jerusalem, exult in your King. Praise His name with dancing, accompanied by tambourine and harp. For the Lord delights in His people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let the faithful rejoice that He honors them. Let them sing for joy even as they lie on their beds. Now, that's the first half. I want to focus on that other portion that seemed a little bit out of context with the first part. Um, so as we read this, I just want to just read the heading here and make this point, and then I'll elaborate on it. So judgment it has already been passed, but still must be executed. God's judgment has already been passed, but the, that must be executed then by God's people. See, look at that picture right there of that courtroom. So you see there over in the upper right-hand corner, the judge that has passed down the sentence, and now he's leaving his bench. He's leaving the room. So the person in the middle there who has been judged, he's now in handcuffs. The bailiff has put him in handcuffs and is now directing him where to go. So even though it's the judge that passed down the sentence, it's the bailiff that has to enforce the sentence. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind. I want to elaborate on this as we read the second half of Psalm 149. So let the praises of God be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with shackles and their leaders with iron chains, to execute the judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. And this is all in the context in Psalm 149 of worship. So here's how this applies. See, the judgment on Satan has already been passed. Jesus won the victory when he raised from the dead. When he died on the cross and raised from the dead, the the victory had been won now and forevermore. Okay? So the the judgment on Satan, death, hell, and the grave has already been passed. And he, Satan, is now beneath our feet, according to Romans 16.20. Satan's beneath our feet because of what Jesus did. Satan's beneath our feet. But God's church is the bailiff in the courtroom, okay? God has passed judgment, but we must carry it out against the one being sentenced. This is all pertaining to the authority that God has given you and me to exercise in the earth. This is part of what it looks like. Praise and worship is part of what the exercise of that authority looks like, believe it or not. See, God has passed judgment, but we must carry it out against the one being sentenced. So, 
Here's the point. Instead of seeing the devil as this big, bad threat, see yourself as a threat to his kingdom and the object of his fear. Hallelujah. Come on, you can do better than that. Hallelujah. Amen. He's so scared of you. If, If you really knew how scared he is of you because of the Jesus he sees in you, you wouldn't ever see yourself as small and insignificant again. So the weapons of our warfare are also mentioned in Psalm 812. From the mouths of children and infants, you have ordained praise on account of your adversaries. To silence the enemy and the avenger. To silence the enemy and the avenger. Okay, so what's this mean? Well, what are the weapons of our warfare? Well, again, according to Psalm 8-2, God has ordained praise to silence the foe. God has ordained praise to silence the foe. That word silence there is the word Shabbat in Hebrew. It means to cause, to fail, to repose, to put down, to take away, and to cause to be lacking. Okay? So reading that again, God has ordained praise to silence, to put down, to take away, to cause to be lacking the foe, the avenger. So as we praise the Lord, this is kind of a key thought here, as we praise the Lord enthusiastically, not numbly, not like just going through the motions. uh, 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 No, enthusiastically. Isn't that what it said in Psalm 149? As we praise the Lord enthusiastically, we cause the enemy to fail. We begin to take back what the enemy has stolen from us. So let me talk about the promised land for a second. The promised land was a a region uh, that the Israelites would go into after that long trek through the wilderness. And that promised land was called Canaan. It was a, a region called Canaan. And now Canaan was a real place, but Canaan is also an allegory of the blessings of God. Now, God promised that land to them, but they had to fight to acquire it. They had to fight to get it. And they had to drive out the inhabitants who were people of massive size, who were warring people. And God has promised us blessings too, ladies and gentlemen. But we have to drive out the forces of darkness that are attempting to keep those blessings from us. And one of the ways that we keep the devil out of our business is through a lifestyle devoted to honoring God through both obedience to his commands, but also his praises being lifted up day after day, day and night. That's one of the weapons of our warfare. So worship has a purpose. It's not just a warm-up to the teaching, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just entertainment. We're not here to entertain you. Let me entertain you. No. No, that's not the purpose of praise and worship. Now, can we get some pleasure out of music? Of course. And God designed it that way. But this is not your dog and pony show. Worship has a purpose. Worship has a purpose. It's a weapon of war. So... I want you to begin to think about how you worship and honor the Lord. Praise like you mean it. See, one of the ways that we wield that weapon of war is just like the the ancients, and when they're in, you know, on the battlefield, they would wield their their swords and their shields. How's that? With some energy, with some enthusiasm, with some passion. That's how we do it. So in Romans 8, 2, back to that. It it really, the whole overarching theme of that psalm is to praise like little children who are not inhibited by social standards of dignity. See, we don't like that very much in the American church, do we? Because we love our dignity. And we don't want to give it up. I can tell you're enjoying that point a lot right there. You know what? You know what? Another thing that I've noticed, you know who the people are 
who tend to worship God like that enthusiastically and passionately? You know who they are? Women. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because American men somehow have this misconception that showing any kind of emotion, especially as it pertains to worship, is not manly. All right, men, this is for you. Let me tell you something. Last week, we talked a lot about King David and his worship and how enthusiastic and how demonstrative it was. Remember that? Well, listen to me. There's not a man in this room right now who was as manly as David was. He was the one who killed a lion and a bear, with God's help, of course. He was the one who slew Goliath, and he led Israel in one military campaign after another. He was a man of war. He was a a manly man. He was a warrior, but he was a worshiping warrior. Hallelujah. So, men, I want to ask you a question, just to challenge your thinking here for a moment. I just want to ask you a question. Are you embarrassed? To worship God? What do you have to be embarrassed about when it comes to worshiping God? Are you embarrassed to worship God? I hope not. I hope you're not embarrassed by God and the worship of God. See, 1 Timothy 6.12 says to fight the good fight of faith. That's a manly imagery, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12. See, faith is so often a fight, ladies and gentlemen. You know, why is faith a fight? Because often you'll have to stand or to persevere or a downright battle, as it says in Ephesians 6. And you can't shrink back when you feel weak, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. And let me point out that that it takes faith to praise in the midst of your personal battle. I want to say that again. It takes faith to praise in the midst of your personal battle. Why does it take faith? Because praise is an act of confidence that the God that you know will come through for you in due time will do exactly that. He'll come through for you in due time. It's an act of confidence. Regardless of the the storm that may be going around all around you right now, you're praising anyway because you know that God's going to come through for you in due time. Maybe it's better said this way, faith causes you to tap in to what's already been provided in Christ Jesus. And that's why praise attracts the presence of God, because faith activates God on your behalf. Let me say that again. That's why faith or praise attracts the presence of God. Remember, it says in Psalm 22.3 that God inhabits the praises of his people. That's why praise attracts the presence of God, because faith activates God on your behalf. So here's another key thought for you. Praise is one of our weapons with which we overcome the enemy. And that's why in 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat was told that an army alliance of three different kingdoms is coming against you, and he was hopelessly outnumbered, they prayed and fasted, and God told them, you don't have to fight this battle, this battle's mine. So they trusted God. They trusted the promises of God. And when they went down to meet the enemy, they put the singers and the dancers and the, the banner wavers and the musicians on the front lines. Now, you don't do that unless you have faith that God's going to keep his promise. Because if you're afraid, you're like, ah, we're putting our musicians on the backside. Not the, but put them on the front lines because that's an act of faith. And they went down there worshiping God and praising God. And when they got down there, there was no fight to fight because the enemy got confused and started attacking one another. And they were all annihilated. Not a single person was left standing by the time they got there. It took them three days to carry away all the plunder, praise God. Yeah. So I want to teach you what we all should be doing when we feel downcast. And this, again, is a lesson from the Psalms, a lesson from David. In Psalm 42, 11, David is stirring himself up in Psalm 42. I mean, David went through a lot of stuff, went through a lot of hard things. And so he, he was feeling downcast. And he's stirring himself up. And he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Then he gives himself a pep talk. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's how you handle it 
when you're feeling downcast. Easier said than done, I know. It's an act of faith. So what's it, why it's an act of faith, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? See, when, when you feel downcast, that's the very time to praise him all the more. Because it's a sacrifice of praise. That's why it says in Hebrews 13.5, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Why does it say a sacrifice of praise? Because sometimes you're not going to feel like it. Sometimes it'll be the last thing that you want to do, as a matter of fact. But it's an act of faith, so you make a sacrifice of praise. Hallelujah. Now, by the way, there's someone in our congregation who's a perfect example of this truth right here, and it's Pam Hester. And Pam, I might want to ask you to actually come up and, and if you would, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. You didn't expect this. I may want you to fill in the gaps here because I know that you've, you've gone through some things. She was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. And uh, through that process, she just began to learn to not even refer to the condition as cancer, wouldn't even say those words as it pertains to her, but, but rather to worship the Lord and thank God through that process. I know she's had some challenges with her children where drug addiction and some terrible things are concerned. She's praised, learned to praise God, and this is her, is her exact words, by the way. She learned to praise God through the chaos. So, Pam, could I ask you to just come and kind of fill in the gaps for me? Go ahead. Do you, do you care? Come on, sister. Walk by faith. Just tell him what you told me. Well, I can say I'm not going to coming up here, but I will say that I will glorify my God who has, who has been so good and so faithful in everything that I've been through. And one of the things that God taught me before I went through cancer, um, I had served the Lord and loved him and honored him. And when there's peace in your life, it's easy to do. But my, um, my two oldest sons were going through some things, my oldest especially. And there were times through his drug addiction, I didn't know if I'd see him the next day. I didn't know. And I was terrified through that. And sometimes in the evening... I would hear sirens, and I, it, it would grip me with fear. I was so terrified that maybe my son would not live through the night. And it, it, was, it was almost like I was just holding on to Jesus by the hem of his, his coat with everything in me because I was so afraid for my son. And God began to teach me that I could praise him, that his word, because what the enemy brings are thoughts. That is what brings you that is the torment. He brings you, he's going to die, he's going to die, or this is going to happen, or you're going to die. The fear is what overtakes you. And so in that, God brought people into my life that would encourage me more and more. And um, I began to understand that what I understood was in my head what God's word said. I had to believe it, and I had to act on it. So sometimes I would be so afraid for my son and... I would come home, I would turn on my praise and worship music. I wouldn't know where he was. I wouldn't know what was going on. But I would praise him through my tears, through many, many tears. And God, my son is here with his beautiful wife. And he is free. And I praise God every day. He is so good. And I love my Lord so much. And then, but through that, after that, I found out I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, um... Shortly after, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. So there was a lot of things. I felt like the enemy was just constant attack. But glory to God, I'm healed. And again, I knew I never said I have cancer. I never said that. I just said I've been diagnosed it. But by his stripes, I am healed. So um, I just give all glory to God. And he continues to teach me. Because even today, even though I've seen such miracles in my life, I constantly have to remind myself. Because I can feel the spirit of depression on me at times. But I have to say that, you know, there's times I don't feel like giving praise. Sometimes I just get so down and out because the enemy attacks me in my mind. And so, um, but when I overcome that and I just raise my hands and lift my hands to the Lord and praise him, I can feel it in the atmosphere and I am just, I'm just so thankful. So I hope that encourages you and 
God is so good. Amen. 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 Thank you. Now, see, Pam, you did fantastic. You walked by faith and not by sight, and that was awesome. That's exactly what we needed. That's a, that's a, that was kind of wind in our sails today, a shot in the arm. That's exactly what we needed to hear, so thank you for that. And I, I praise God, too, for Cody and his family being here. I mean, praise God, yeah. God, God is faithful. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So let that encourage you. All right, we're coming down home stretch here. So give me just a few more minutes and we'll be done. So I want to summarize where we've been so far and then I want to make a couple of closing thoughts. So our summary points are this. God has ordained praise so that we may displace the enemy and possess the land. That's his promise of blessings, even in the midst of bad stuff. That's why I love exactly how Pam articulated it to me. She learned to praise in her chaos. The praise in her chaos. So praise is ordained so that we may displace the enemy and possess the land, which is the promise of blessings, and that his children, that's us, may pass judgment on the evil one and his kingdom activity, and that he, God, is activated on our behalf. Praise activates God on your behalf because it's an act of faith. Now, on that note, this is my last scripture for today, Psalm 89.7 says this, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be held in reverence by all those around him. So I want to make a point here. It's so important. You will never find the manifest presence of God in an atmosphere where he has, is not held in reverence. Amen. So you'll never find, and actually where you personally are concerned, you'll never have an intimate relationship with God unless you learn to revere him. That's why we have this banner up behind me from Psalm, First uh, Samuel rather, First Samuel two thirty. Those who honor me, I will honor. The reason I want that up there all the time is I I want us to always be reminded that this is a church. I hope, and we're endeavoring to be better in this, that reveres God and honors His presence, not only while we're together, but hopefully in your personal lives and in your homes as well. So I want to say those two points again. You'll never experience the presence of God in any powerful, manifest way in an atmosphere where there's no reverence for him. And you'll never have an intimate relationship with the Lord unless you learn to revere him. Last week I said that I couldn't care less about how you all worship. I just, you know, I'm involved when I'm up here leading worship or when I'm down there on the front row during worship, depending on what setting that we're in. I, you know, I focus on what I do. I couldn't care less about what you do. God had to correct me on that. You know, sometimes, you know, we pastors, we say things that are not always correct, and sometimes they're born out of our emotions, and I think that that statement was born out of emotion. I couldn't care what you do. I'll just care what I do during worship. Well, God corrected me on that, and after thinking about that and praying about it more, um, I guess I do care how you worship, because the reason is twofold. Number one, because I want you to be blessed, and so does God. I want you to be blessed and, and to experience all of God that you possibly can. And I know that praise and worship, a passionate life of praise and worship will help to get you there. And secondly, I want this church to experience all of God that there is to experience. And, you know, I know that we as a church won't get there if we as a church don't honor his presence and revere him. So I guess I do care how we worship. I'm not going to like scope you out and watch you, but I, I guess I really do care how we worship as a church. And God cares, see? God cares. He wants you to care. See, the manifest presence and power of God is available in an atmosphere that honors and reveres him. All right, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes, and then we're going to be done. We'll pray. Donnie, can you go ahead and come on up and get prepared to, to uh, play something? I just want to read these quotes really quick. Uh, Shalina Griffiths, in um, her devotional, A Real Desire to Praise God, says this, A pure heart is nothing more than being real with God and not 
pretending to honor and adore him. Will you do this? Give God praise freely? The decision is yours. Only you can change your attitude towards worshiping God. I feel like I need to say this. You know, we have a praise and worship team that comes up here and plays and sings very skillfully. And uh, one of the things that, that I want to encourage you musicians and singers about is that if the only time you're ever inspired to be at church or to worship God is to, is to sing and be on the platform to sing or to play your instrument, um, I just want to challenge you to be here even when you're not singing or playing and also to worship God passionately apart from being up here on stage singing or playing. It's, it's wonderful that you use your talent to, to worship God and to serve the people. That's commendable. I, I applaud that. But what's your private praise and worship look like? Musicians and singers. What's your private, private praise and worship look like? Are we assuming to lead God's people in worship when we have no worship life of, of our own? That's hypocritical. I don't know that any of you fall into that category, but I just felt like I needed to say that that we need to be worshipers of God first and musicians and singers second. We need to be worshipers of God first and pastors and elders second. Right? One person got happy about that point right there. You all ought to be, you ought to be examining yourself. The Bible tells us to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Last quote, then we're done. Suzanne Whitlock in uh, her article, Engaging the God Who Sees You, says, Worship changes the atmosphere around wherever it occurs. And worship is a catalyst that brings revelation. Worship stirs up our spiritual gifts to minister. In short, the sum of all this worship ushers us into God's presence where all kinds of things are possible for those who believe. Hallelujah. Yes. Stand up with me if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening and may God's grace and favor shine on you.